Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and to getting in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 74. We're still doing this whole war with France thing, which we will be finishing up shortly. Just this, and then one more episode. This episode, I'm focusing on the relationships of Edward and Mary with France. Neither of them reigned for very long, so even combined, it's going to be a shorter episode. The next time, it's going to be Elizabeth, and then we're done. Before I get started, though, a few quick reminders. First, This particular episode was researched by the wonderful Paige. She has started doing some research work for the show, and I'm very grateful to have her help. She's awesome. Second, if you like this show, please leave a rating on iTunes. It's such an important way that you can help us. And third, remember to go to the website at englandcast.com, where I've started putting up all the transcripts for each show, and you can sign up for the mailing list. For just a few more days, you can get the Kick-Ass Tutor Women e-course for free by signing up to the mailing list as well. So check that all out at englandcast.com. So let's jump right into Edward VI. We've been talking about this relationship that England had with France and how it was really quite complicated. European foreign policy at this point was really complicated, but with France, it was even more so thanks to the close relationships that the English and the French nobility had with each other. Only 60 years before Henry VII became king, you had another Henry who was actually named heir to the French throne. So it's a close relationship. It's a messy relationship. Like many close relationships, it can be pretty muddy sometimes. We talked about how Henry VIII was constantly either going to war with France or making a peace treaty with France, and also how the closeness and age to the French king, Francis, added a whole nother level of rivalry between the two kings. Henry VIII died with just the one son, Edward, who would become Edward VI when Henry died in 1547. His mother had been Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, who died only two weeks after he was born. At the time of Henry's death, there had been a lot of talk about Edward marrying the Scottish Queen, a woman that we know as Mary Queen of Scots. She became queen when her father died just six days after she was born, and she was still a small child. Henry, who had already married his sister Margaret into Scotland earlier, had this kind of dream of uniting England and Scotland. It was something that all the Tudor kings or all the kings had had for a while was this idea of both countries on the same island being together. But of course, Scotland didn't want to give in and be reigned by, be ruled by England. So they were constantly fighting it out. Scotland had originally seemed interested in marrying Mary into England, and they had agreed to the marriage. But then Scotland had second thoughts, thanks to an ancient alliance called the Auld Alliance with the French, and they weren't quite as keen. So the suit to marry Mary then was backed by a military invasion. So England actually said, okay, well, we're going to invade you and make you marry Edward. This became known as the rough wooing. So this is all background information, because what happened next was that Mary married the French Dauphin. And during this time, the Scottish and French policies are pretty similar. Mary's mother was a French woman living in Scotland as well. So the two countries were really inextricably linked. The war with Scotland was was supported by French troops fighting for the Scots. 
So any war with Scotland also involved getting France involved with it. The political landscape in Europe at the time saw religion as this cloud that hung over all of the countries, and France was firmly Catholic, as we talked about before. Interestingly, Scotland was headed in the direction of becoming more Protestant and Calvinist, but still with the French marriages, the two countries were linked, and after the marriage betrothal between Mary and the Dauphin Francis, the French actually sent troops into Scotland to defend them, saying that the two countries were now one. England won some battles early on in Scotland, and their relationship with France was failing quickly. Mary, Queen of Scots, left for France, where she would be raised, and the French king, Henri II, moved 10,000 more troops into Scotland in 1548. The French also besieged the English hold of Bologna. So you'll remember in the last episode, we talked about how Henry VIII had captured Bologna. So now the French are besieging it. By 1550, England really wanted peace and sent a delegation to negotiate. But England's position was very weak. They were nearly bankrupt after all of the fighting. And in March of 1550, they signed a treaty saying that France would pay England 400,000 crowns and England would give Bologna back. The French also agreed to remove all of the remaining troops in Scotland. So now we've got France and England being united under Edward. They sealed this with a marriage treaty. Edward would marry Princess Elizabeth, the daughter of Henri II, when she was 12 years old, and France would get a dowry of 200,000 crowns. In return, England would stay neutral in all of the religious wars going on in Europe. This marriage never happened because, of course, Edward died in 1553, and he passed the throne to Lady Jane Grey, who was a Protestant. Though, of course, that didn't work out how he wanted it to, since it only lasted for a few days. And Mary Tudor, his older Catholic sister, rallied and fought for her rights, and she was supported by the people. So Mary becomes queen. Now, Mary's relationship with France was longer since she was much older, and she could remember a time before England was Protestant. And she's remembered as queen for there's kind of two different things in popular culture that she was remembered for. First, of course, burning Protestants, which isn't altogether entirely fair, as I talked about in my episode on her. And second, she lost Calais. And so that's the other thing that she's really remembered for. When she was only two years old, she was married to the Dauphin of France, who at the time when he was Dauphin, he was the aforementioned Henri II, who would be sending troops later on. So you see, it gets very, very messy. So she was betrothed to the Dauphin of France, who was Henry the Henri II. But after three years, the marriage contract was canceled, and Henri would go on to marry another formidable woman, Catherine de Medici. So a few years later, when England and France were negotiating another treaty, they revisited the idea of Mary marrying into France, this time to the French King Francis himself. But the marriage proved unnecessary. Cardinal Wolsey was able to create the alliance without it. Things took a downward turn for Mary in 1533 when she was declared illegitimate after Henry VIII, her father, married Anne Boleyn. Mary refused to acknowledge Anne as queen 
and she remained estranged from her father and away at court. She started suffering from a variety of sicknesses and illnesses, including problems with her menstrual cycle. And of course, later on, after she was married, um, decades later, decade and a half later, she would have several phantom pregnancies. So it seems like this had been a theme in her physical health even early on. Mary was reconciled with her father after he married Jane Seymour, and she signed a document. She had to sign a document acknowledging her own illegitimacy, which must have been really horrible for her. She also had to admit that her father was the head of the church. And it wasn't until 1544, while Henry was married to his final wife, Catherine Parr, that Mary was restored to the succession in a will that Henry created then. So Mary had kept up this close relationship with the Holy Roman Empire. Her mother had been Spanish, and at one point she was also betrothed into the empire. Her close advisor after the estrangement was Eustace Chapuy, who was also Spanish. And as soon as she became queen after her brother died, she immediately wanted to marry into Spain, marrying Prince Philip. So this was a clear signal that she was siding with the empire, which was perpetually at war with France. Early on, Mary wanted to go to war with France as well to support Philip in his battles, but her council opposed it. Mary experienced several rebellions during her reign one of which Wyatt's Rebellion I talked about in last year's Rebellion series. So check that out if you haven't listened to it. One that I talked about, well, one that I hadn't talked about related to her relationship with France was one called Stafford's Raid. So Thomas Stafford was a grandson of the Duke of Buckingham and the Countess of Salisbury. He was descended from royalty on both sides of his family. He was also the nephew of Cardinal Reginald Pole, and he spent three years in Italy. Then he traveled to Poland. He had a really long list of personal grievances. It was like a mile long. He thought he should have had titles and lands that he didn't, that had been stripped from him. And he just was had he had a chip on his shoulder the size of Texas. He became involved with people who were associated with Wyatt's Rebellion early on in Mary's reign. He had a brief stint in prison, then he fled to France in March of 1554. By late 1556, he was referring him to himself as the heir to the English throne, and he sought the support of the French king, Henri, in supporting an uprising to have him become king of England. Henri already had Mary, Queen of Scots, at his court, and she actually had a much better claim to the throne. So it's likely that the king never actually considered Stafford's ideas or his claim. But in January 1557, he did bring Stafford to court. And then on April 23rd, Stafford was off the coast in Yorkshire. He had two ships. They were potentially supplied by Henri, and he had a few hundred supporters. He disguised himself and his men as peasants, and he came into Scarborough on market day. He overpowered the men holding the Scarborough castle. There were only about a dozen or so. And then he tried to incite a new revolt. He claimed that if people didn't support him, all of England would be turned over to Prince Philip of Spain, because obviously if a woman marries a man, she suddenly loses her entire personality and her entire love for her country and all of her loyalties, and Mary would just give everything to Spain, right? As being a little facetious there. But you know, this highlights one of the problems with having a queen, because when she got married, you know, was the idea that she would have to turn everything over to her husband. So that was one of the big kind of issues that she dealt with throughout her marriage. So Stafford's up there in Scarborough, he's speaking about how suddenly England's going to become Spanish, and we're all going to have to 
hablamos espanol or something like that. Anyway, the English find out about the rebellion within just a few hours. They retake the castle. The whole thing just was never going to succeed in the first place. They capture Stafford and his men. People are killed. And now it appears as if the French had given their support to this claimant to the throne. And even if Henri himself didn't believe in Stafford's claim, he perhaps might have thought that it would be an annoyance to the English, you know, just something else to get in their way. Other modern historians claim that it was actually the English who staged the whole thing, making it look like it was the French, so that the English would be drawn into the Franco-Spanish War on the side of Spain. Whatever, however it happened, England did enter the war as Spain's allies ally. So now we've got England at war with France again. And this is where we lose Calais in 1558 with a siege. We lose Calais. We, I'm I'm not English, but we in terms of the royal we, Mary loses Calais. This was the last English stronghold in France. And it can't be overstated how bad this was for Mary. You know, since the time of the conquest, We've got this weird relationships with the Normans, who, of course, came from French, having land in England. And then as time goes on, you've got English people who have rights to lands in France because of their fathers and their fathers' fathers. And you've even got English saying that they have claims to the French throne. And, you know, the relationship was very muddy. But during the Hundred Years' War, you see England's strongholds or England's lands in France growing and growing and growing. So that there were a huge number of English people living in France. And at the height of English success, you've got the French or you've got the English king um, being given, being named as the heir to the French throne. And so then slowly throughout the time of the Wars of the Roses, French, the French are taking more and more of their land back. England had always managed to hang on to Calais. And it was such an important mental kind of thing for them and for trade to have another port. It was just really important for them to have Calais, and they lost it. And all of the English citizens who were living in the Pale of Calais had to leave, had to come back to England. And in England, there was absolute shock and disbelief that this final territory was lost. And of course, a few months later, Queen Mary died. She said, apparently on her deathbed, she told her family that When I am dead and cut open, they will find Philip and Calais inscribed on my heart, which is very, very romantic. Uh, I'm not sure that that's true, but that's what they say. And thus ended a very, another very strange part of the relationship between France and England. So that's it for this week. The book recommendations this week, there's two. One is Chris Skidmore's Edward VI, The Lost King of England. The other is called Tudor Queenship, The Reigns of Mary and Elizabeth by Anna Whitelock and Alice Hunt. Links are available on the website. Remember to go check out all of the links, grab the free e-course on kick-ass Tudor women, and sign up for the mailing list all at englandcast.com. And I will be back next time finishing up this whole war with France bit. And we're going to talk about Elizabeth and France. And then we're moving on to something really interesting, crime and punishment in Tudor England. So stay tuned for that. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoffe, Bord in Bauerbrick, that soul is Samly's on sight. Men's cool maiden of meat, fair and freight of thunder. 
swore for me to one the blood of blood and of bone. Never yet he must have known the roads of Mary Londa, blown on the 